Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. This week, the gang sits down to talk again about the more practical elements of the Lord's Supper. Should we fence the table? What does that mean? And what are the repercussions? How often should we take the Lord's Supper? And what about gluten-free communion? Keep listening to hear those answers and at the end of the podcast to find out how to download a free MP3 from the Alliance. Well, welcome to the Mortification of Spin. I'm your host, Sir Elton John, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Meatloaf and Yoko Ono, to give you some superannuated rock star perspective on issues facing the contemporary church. And I have to say that if you have no idea who I am or who Meatloaf or Yoko Ono are, you're too young to be listening to this program, and really, you need to go out and get a life. What, what anyway, do you do if you don't know what the word superannuated means? <laughs> You need to get a dictionary or an education. (laughs) Anyway, today on Mortification Spin Bully Pulpit, we want to build on the last bully pulpit we did a couple of weeks ago, where we discussed the theology of the Lord's Supper. Today, we want to address more practical issues. And I want to start the ball rolling here by asking uh, Amy, how important do you think it is for churches to have a high view of the Lord's Supper relative to the matter of church discipline. I think that's very important. I would say that um, that is one of the more important factors in church discipline. And if they do have a high view of the Lord's Supper and then uh, the fencing around the table, those who are under church discipline who are excommunicated from that and still attend the service are going to really feel the weight of their sin. And and I would hope be led to repentance through being excluded from being able to participate in the body and the blood of Christ in the special means of grace. Yeah, that's kind of the first um, lever, so to speak, when it comes to church discipline is to bar someone from the table. And if we haven't done a good job of instructing the church on the significance of the Lord's Supper, then, you know, what, bar me from the Lord's Supper? You know, somebody might think it's entirely you What's know, trivial. What's the big deal? You know, they won't understand why it's so yeah. significant. Mm-hmm. I'm aware of one situation where, although it wasn't a formal excommunication, a person uh, confessed to a sin before a church service, and the pastor, in addressing them, said, you know, I can't formally process discipline at this point, but uh, as you've confessed this sin and you've told me you don't feel at all repentant, what I'm going to do, I'm going to ask you to to hold back from the Lord's Supper today. And when the elements come your way, allow them to pass you by without taking them. And use that moment to reflect on how you have divided yourself from the Lord and divided yourself from your fellow uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. And the person afterwards actually reported that it was at that moment, mm. as the elements passed them by, that they came to repentance, mm. that they really realized at that point, yes, mm. what I've done is serious. I've mm. potentially jeopardized myself here through my sin and my lack of repentance. So mm. it speaks directly to what you've just been talking about, Todd. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it illustrates you know, Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians 11 that, look, you, you, you need to judge yourself. Those are strong words. It's a strong... Mm-hmm 
admonition. You needed to judge yourself so that you don't partake of it in an unworthy manner. Because of this, some of you are sick and some of you have fallen asleep. So Paul understood it as a, a life and death issue. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that leads me to ask mm-hmm. about, you know, kind of how we fence the table, um, specifically in giving instructions to believers, to those who are baptized members of the church, because we don't want to give the impression uh, that if you have any sin in your life at all, you can't receive the Lord's Supper. We come as saved sinners, and yet there is a sense in which we can be disqualified because of sin. So how do we help our people understand the difference between coming as, as we all do, still in the middle of our sanctification, and yet where is that line where we may need to say, you know what, for me to receive this would, 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 would be unworthy at this point? How do we help our people understand the difference? That's a tough one. I think one of the things, of course, is that the Lord's Supper always takes place in the context of a worship service where the mm-hmm. word will have been preached. Mm-hmm. So one trusts that the, the Spirit takes the word and does his regular word in the congregation. The fact that it's a Lord's Supper day is on one level neither here nor there. One hopes that the, the Spirit is convicting people of their sin and, and guiding them to, to what they should do relative to life in general, relative to the Lord's Supper in particular. Then I think when it comes to fencing the table, it is a it's a hard balance to strike. It it may have to be struck in a different way at different times in the in the life of a congregation, depending on what's going on. There are liturgies out there. The OPC has a, a liturgy in its uh, Book of Church Order where there is a formula for fencing the table. Mm-hmm. And I would recommend that uh, pastors who are concerned to try to, to get this right get hold of a few liturgies and look at how they're done in the formal yeah. liturgies. It gives you a sense of the kind of things to say and the sort of balance to strike. So my advice would be look at how other people do it and yeah. learn from their strengths and weaknesses on that front. Yeah. Okay, I have a related question then. Um, and this is maybe something practical that we experience at different times. And this isn't a sin-related issue in partaking of the Lord's Supper. But let's say I am visiting another church, and they are serving the Lord's Supper there. Now, some churches, um, I know, you know, of, of one Baptist church in my area, will not allow you to ha- partake in the Lord's Supper unless you are a member of their particular mm-hmm. church. Um, what now? I know that. The Catholic Church would not want us, and nor would we want to share the table there. Mm-hmm. But what about if we are at a Lutheran church where we know that there are some differences mm-hmm. um, in the way we look at the presentation yeah. of Christ mm-hmm. and the bread and the wine? <clears throat> right. you know, so there's a lot of different things to think about yeah. Yeah. when we're visiting or worshiping with or at a, a wedding maybe, yeah. um, and communion is served. What do you think yeah. about that? I think on the Lutheran front, if it was a conservative confessional Lutheran church, you probably would not be allowed to take the Lord's Supper because you would not be considered as a reformed person to be taking the Lord's Supper in a way that discerns the Lord's body. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think you would find, Amy, that the same kind of rule would apply in a Lutheran church as would apply in a Roman Catholic church. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was, I mean, a couple of things come to my mind. One, I would always honor whatever the local practice is. So if I turn up at a church where they don't allow visitors to take the Lord's Supper, right. I, mean, I would honor the local practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. As a pastor, on the other hand, when we, we always have some visitors in our congregation when, uh, when the Lord's Supper uh, takes place. I'm not going to have my elders, you know, body surfing the congregation <laughs> to snatch the elements out of the hands of a yeah. visitor. I, I think there comes a point at which you eat and drink you know, response, you know, 
responsible for yourself at that mm-hmm. point. So I would right. say, err on the side of charity at my church right. when visitors come. I would fence the table. I would mm-hmm. let them know what's at stake. And then I would leave it up to them to decide mm-hmm. whether they should take the Lord's Supper yeah. or not. It kind of goes in line with First Corinthians 11 at the end there where he's talking about um, examining ourselves. He, in verse 31 he says, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Mm-hmm. So there's this responsibility Absolutely. to examine ourselves before the table. Yeah, yeah. you're supposed to judge yourself. And I, and I think precisely because of I – mean, I, I mean, I suppose if, if we have and, – and periodically we will have a in our service a, a, a come-forward communion where the, the, the session are gathered across the front and personally hand the we elements to, to people. And, and that's a wonder – I love – being able to do that, and that would that sort of approach would allow you to be a bit more proactive in that. But but nevertheless, I think Amy, you're right. Paul's instructions seem to indicate that the onus is on the individual to be responsible. Um, when 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 I fence the table, um, when it comes time to to speak to any unbelievers that are there, I I, I want to explain to them um, why we fence the table, um, and, and and also with. with because we live in such an egalitarian society where to be told no is such a personal offense, I try to explain it to them from the standpoint of, look, we're really glad you're here. We hope that we love when people who aren't believers come to our church, and, we, and we're really glad that you're here to witness this and to see kind of what's going on. But we do ask you not to receive these elements, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I, I try to take into account um, how people in our day um, – hear uh, the word no and to explain Mm -hmm. look we love you we're really glad you're here but Mm -hmm. no (laughs) you would see this presumably todd as one reason why we would disagree with pedo communion yes this Mm -hmm. this need for the person who's taking the elements to discern the body and blood of the lord and also to examine themselves right and that's one of the reasons you bring up pedo communion so here's another kind of practical implication here we have um reformed churches that that serve their infants uh, communion. Um, it's an odd-looking practice, obviously, to try to get uh, bread and juice or wine into the in, into the system of, of a baby. I've, I've seen it on uh, video, and it is a strange-looking process. But um, I, I understand their rationale in, in that, hey, listen, the sign of the covenant, baptism, goes to our infants. Why would we withhold from them uh, the the sacramental meal or, or the covenant meal. And I don't understand the question because it seems rather obvious why we do. It seems rather obvious in the biblical text why we do, right mm-hmm. there in 1 Corinthians 11, right. that it presupposes an ability to discern the body of the Lord, to discern your own sin and your fitness for receiving that. And so I have a, maybe I'm thinking rather simplistically, but I don't understand the ultimately than the biblical justification for pedo communion. There's also a weight to baptism that I think isn't being applied there. Um, you know, if you're a baptized child who is now, you know, visibly given the sign and the seal of being in the church community um, and the covenant community, if, if they turn away from the faith and mm-hmm. if they do not profess faith later, then that is a sign of, you know, there's a curse aspect that is called a cutting mm-hmm. off mm-hmm. and, or you know, drowning in the waters instead of yeah. being blessed and reborn in the mm-hmm. waters. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's not like there's you know no effect there. Right, right. You know, sometimes I'm asked um, by, by Baptist brothers and sisters, you know, uh, since we baptize our infants, you know, at what point is there, you know, a public profession of faith? And, of course, that's part of the process of receiving the Lord's Supper, is that once that person 
is is able to understand their sin and to confess Christ, uh, then it is the welcoming them to the Lord's table, which which makes that public profession of faith, in my mind, uh, such a weighty and wonderful time. And each each time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, almost every time we have new uh, communing members, uh, children who have professed faith in Christ, who were able now to welcome to the table yeah, as they have professed their faith in Christ. It's a wonderful time. One other th- another thing, Todd, um, yeah. uh, we're, we're very sensitive on this program, as you yes, know. Yes, we, we are. We make sure that every program is gluten-free yes. so that and anybody with, a, with an yeah. imaginary allergy can listen in without any kind of <laughs> upset or disturbance. Um, <laughs> gluten-free bread. Yeah. Is it an abomination in the sight of the Lord? <laughs> and I use I, the word bread there in inverted commas. I've kind of got a funny story about that. Um, we have gluten-free bread at our church. As and, do we. Um, Otherwise yeah. known as bread-free bread, yes. yes. Well, actually, we use rice cakes for the gluten-free rice cakes. Okay. Well, my, my PCA church I was at in Martinsburg had this wonderful, sweet, delicious bread. And now mm. I'm at the SOPC church with gluten-free bread. And um, so we just had communion last week, and the plate was being passed. And my daughter, Solana, you know, she's taking it with us. And my other daughter, Zadie. Well, sure enough, Solana starts choking on the gluten-free dry dust <laughs> that's going down her throat. And she's got to kind of like hold it in because we still had to pass the cup, you know. And she nearly that. fell asleep in the Lord. She about that point. died, <laughs> basically. Because of Must have been because of unconfessed sin. Yeah. Well, I mean, what happens if you're allergic to gluten-free stuff? Like I, I am. Like I am. I mean, yeah. My <laughs> spirit is allergic to gluten-free. Um, so, I mean, that's why that's why we serve um, bits of the stuffed crust uh, pizza bread from Pizza Hut. It's got pepperoni and cheese inside. It's wonderful. It's delicious. Yeah, we do it for people like the mad woman at our church. Yeah. It's only because she imagines she's gluten intolerant that we have to eat this abomination. That's right. Okay, so let me so. ask you this. Let me ask you this. Um, uh, proper setting uh, for the Lord's Supper. What What I mean is when and where should it be served? How um, and, and how frequently? In the context of the preaching of the word, yeah. I would expand that to say that if you've got somebody who's a member of your church who can't get to church, say a very elderly person or a very ill person, I would have no problem. I, what I wouldn't do is hold the Lord's Supper in my church and then drive my car with some of the elements over to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, to feed them right. but what i would do is gather together maybe a couple of the elders a few members of the congregation go to their house and i'd have no trouble in in having a communion service in somebody's house yeah so for me the key is it's got to be as part of a worship service the context of the preaching of the word right which is how we do it with um some folks that that cannot get out of of their home or where they are and so we'll, we'll take uh, some of the members of the session will go um, there will be some time of exhortation from the word, some singing. Um, we always have somebody who plays the guitar and we'll sing with the person and, and then receive the Lord's Supper. And it's a, it's a very sweet time and very appropriate to do it uh, that way. And one of the reasons I ask also about the setting is because there are churches where, you know, retreats, youth group gatherings, that kind of thing, oftentimes in order to just make it an extra special time, they'll tag on. Uh, the Lord's Supper without any really oversight, pastoral oversight or, or oversight of the session. And we would want to steer away from that, I would imagine. Yeah, I think if you take Paul's teaching on the Lord's Supper seriously, it's a serious matter. Right. And therefore, you really need it really needs to be overseen by those in authority in the church. Right, right. Very okay, much. let me ask this. Let me ask this. Wine or juice? 
I think that my favorite argument what is, wasn't really being made as an argument, but Calvin talks about how the elements of bread and wine truly symbolize the type of nourishment that we're getting. And so one of the, the descriptions of wine symbolizing that is that it gladdens us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Grape yeah, juice I, doesn't gladden. Right. I mean, I've heard arguments that, you know, the bitterness of the wine is like the bitterness of Christ's sufferings. But on the other hand, you know, the sweetness of grape juice could be the sweetness of the gospel. Uh, I, I to me, it's not something I'd want to split a church over. We actually have both right. now at our church. We move from grape juice only to, to dual practice, if you like. Uh, but I, I was, I didn't press for it either way on session because to me, it was not an issue I wanted to cause division in the church over. Right. We actually did it peaceably in the end and it was okay. Yeah. But I, my preference is for wine, but I'm not going to make that a strong, mm-hmm. I, I suspect Wherever I'm pastor, there's always going to be something more pressing and important to have to deal with. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, if that was your only problem, then <laughs> right. Hey, so I've that... got the mad woman in my congregation. Can you imagine <laughs> the number of oh. problems I have? Exactly. She'd Good take like five or six of those cups if you were serving wine. I bet. Oh, dear. she is. She is a whole case book. Yeah. In now, now, Carl, in in England, they serve gin at the Lord's Supper, right? Uh, in certain certain very progressive quarters, I believe they do. Yes, yes. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Or beer that's flat and room temperature in the <laughs> British tradition, of course. Well, let's talk about frequency. Yeah. What is the frequency at your church? Do you think that there is, you know, a better way? I I love the idea of weekly um, Lord's Supper. Um, practically, it's almost impossible to do that. At, my church, although I suppose we could try to make it happen, but we uh, we observe the Lord's Supper once a month. Yeah, we do it twice a month at my church, once in the morning, once in the evening. I think you make a good case for weekly. I would say that I would not want communion service every worship service because I would want to make the point that the word is ultimately the thing that has priority. That's good. That they're not co-equal, if you like, but that in some ways that's a a pragmatic move for emphasis. Mm-hmm. But I would say it should be regular enough that it's feeding people souls and can be used for effective discipline. If you're having communion once every six months and somebody sins the day after the communion service, you know, I'm not going to tell them we're barring you from the Lord's Supper in six months' time. That would be yeah. ridiculous. I think you need it more regularly than that. Mm-hmm. And I am told that one person I've talked to told me that when his church introduced weekly communion, the amount of marriage counseling the pastor had to do dropped dramatically huh. because people felt the pressure of being reconciled every week. So there are good arguments, I think. For I think that's a very good argument. And, and I have a very practical argument for more frequent communion, and that is just for those who serve in the nursery or other ministries mm-hmm. like that, well, I guess the n- nursery particularly during the service. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it's, it's devastating, and I have to do a little bit of a heart check when I see that I'm scheduled for communion Sunday because we have it once a month. And then I think um, I'm not going to have communion for two months. And, yeah. and that just seems way too long to have to wait. And you don't have as much of a heart to serve, I think, on that right. day as maybe you could. So um, that's one of my arguments to have it at least twice a month. Yeah. That's all good. right. Well, I hope that I think we covered all of our little practical bases here from the uh, discipline to the gluten free and we'll get some angry emails over that one. So that'll be fun to handle. I think I'll close this out with pointing us back to our future hope from this whole sacrament. And that is a verse from Revelation 19.9. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
So thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. Be sure to visit our website at mortificationofspin.org. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, Bully Pulpit, the podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen who hold the historical creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. Christians have been participating in the Lord's Supper since Jesus first instituted it 2,000 years ago. In light of that, we'd like to give you a free message, The Faith Once Delivered, Reestablishing Our Communion with the Saints of Old, by Anthony Carter. Make sure to visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, to download this MP3. And join us next week when Hannah Anderson joins our hosts to talk about women's issues in the church. You've written this article that got us talking that we wanted to discuss with you today, and it's called Complementarian Organizations and Where Women Belong. Um, You kind of challenge in your article how ecclesiology works out in a multi-denominational setting, like a parachurch. What I have found among my friends is we don't question where we belong in our local church. We tend to feel at a loss where we belong in this um, milieu of broader parachurch complementarianism, whether it's embodied by conferences or just the conversation online or a bit even within the evangelical celebrity culture of you have different voices speaking to the question. How do you process all that? Come back to hear more next time. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to visit mortificationofspin.org to see and hear more from Amy, Carl, and Todd and to find your free download. Imagine if there's a patriarchalist out there who's also heavily into gluten intolerances. We're in so much trouble now. It's a big constituency.